here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1963, and our book is The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea by Yukio Mishima. We're going to talk more about some of the things that this book is famous for outside of Japan and beyond its own time, so I'm going to stick to a pretty narrow summary here. It's about a sailor, Ryuji, who falls in love with a widowed shopkeeper, Fusako, and decides to quit being a sailor and make a life on land with Fusako and her 13-year-old son, Noboru. Uh, Noboru and his friends have a secret hobby of killing and dissecting animals, and they have um, these strange and exacting ideas about why they're doing these things. They feel that Ryuji has given up the pursuit of glory by accepting this domestic life on land, and they come up with a plan to kill him. And the book ends with Ryuji looking over the sea, drinking sedative tea that will make him weak enough for the group of kids to kill. So, on to our conversation. Hey, Sandy, I'm so happy you're back on the podcast. Hey, Catherine, here we are again. (laughs) Uh, So, I was thinking about this book and thinking that the facts about Mishima's life affect how we read it so much that I think to talk about it, we really have to start with Mishima himself. And... And then we're going to get into the book, what's in it, how it's written, all those things. Do you want to describe this guy? Okay, yeah. Um, so I'm going to give like very brief outline of his life and then the, the major, major event that defines how he is remembered. Um, so he is from a upper-class samurai family and... Like, as a boy, he was apparently very sort of weak and sickly. Um, Found a quote here. The boys respected Mishima for his intelligence and his sharp tongue, but he was always very weak and sickly. Those were tough days just before the war, this World War II. And there were always a lot of fistfights. Mishima was always cringing and physically afraid, so the boys picked on him all the time. Um, So so he's that kind of person, and apparently um, he has this... He has this backstory, which you hear a lot with tough guy writers for some reason, where he had a grandmother who feminized him and wouldn't let him do boy things. Um, And then he grows up. He is rejected for military service. Supposedly he had a bad cold that day, and the doctor told him he had tuberculosis. Um, And this deeply affected him, apparently, in later years, because after he grew up, he became fascinated with bodybuilding with martial arts and and with militarism and he became one of the most prominent speakers for the right wing but the thing for which he is best known is where that ended up um and i'm gonna i'm gonna link to there's a a great new york times profile that was written just three months before his death which is just about him and his literary reputation in Japan, which was at that time, just before his death, absolutely mammoth, like um, the Nobel Prize winner Kawabata is quoted in this profile saying that he is the kind of talent that only comes around every 300 years. He's much greater than Kawabata himself. But at the same time, Mishima had started a far-right militia which was supposedly in response to riots in the 1960s by the left wing. Um, 
And he, so he created this militia called the Shield Society, which was only about 100 young men. And all they did was like do military drills and sing songs, and which Mishima wrote himself. Mishima actually not only wrote the songs, but designed the costumes too, and took karate lessons together. Um, and Mishima at the time, he was such a strange person. Um, for one thing, he was one of the most famous Japanese gay people, although he would often deny being gay and his friends would deny he was gay. He had written he's, his, all of his early work is literature about being gay and being in the closet and having these feelings about it and having this kind of S&M gay sexuality. Um, and in every way, it's, it's autobiographical. It's very clearly based on the circumstances and events of his life. But he did marry and live this outwardly heterosexual life. And also while he was like far right, which means highly ultra nationalistic and always talking about Japan. And he wanted Japan to get back to the Japan of the, of pre Matthew Perry before the, the Meiji um, period. So basically a samurai ethic yeah, like his feudal ethic, ethic where he wanted the emperor to be um, seen as divine and very isolated from the outside world, which is, of course, what ended with Perry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like for him, the greatest tragedy was when the empire, the, sorry, the emperor made his announcement, renouncing his divine nature, saying he was a human being. Um, and so... I think it's actually a key to one very interesting feature of this. We can get to that later. I, I just wanted to highlight it for now. Yeah. Okay. So, so basically like the, the event that changed Mishima's reputation in Japan and made him a national embarrassment instead of the person they wanted to win the Nobel prize and expected to win the Nobel prize was that he staged a really quite ridiculous coup attempt where he took it was himself and four other men, and they went to an army base and barricaded themselves inside an office and tied the commandant to a chair. And then Mishima went out to address the soldiers gathered below and made the speech, you know, with this manifesto. And he was just heckled, and the soldiers laughed at him and jeered at him. And then he committed ritual suicide, seppuku, and one of the other men played the the uh, traditional role of cutting off his head but failed several times and another one of them had to complete it and the whole thing was one of these like cartoonishly it's it's like it's almost in Jacob wool territory um, you know it's it's or Milo territory it's this sort of right wing stuff that is at once ridiculous and horrifying. Um, and you can't believe it's real or January 6th territory, except yeah. that obviously at a time when the right wing was not ascendant and did not have the power or the backing to get anywhere. Yeah. I was just reading an article in the BBC that was describing him as kind of like an enfant terrible that um, was seen as somewhat ridiculous in his posturing, but also just kind of a national treasure but people didn't necessarily take him seriously or I guess like that phrase from the last presidency, like 
seriously, but not literally, like one of those things. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that, that there are quite a lot of those, like um, this BBC article cited Norman Mailer as an example um, of somebody else that it's like, oh, of course he would be the kind of person to headbutt Gore Vidal, but you don't actually <laughs> think that he would commit ritual suicide. So that when it actually happened, it seemed both in character and completely shocking and ridiculous. Yes, and it makes everybody who supported him look ridiculous too. Like, oh, we were cheering. <laughs> we were right behind him marching in this parade, laughing at what we thought were his jokes. And now we're in the parade to the commandant's office to stage this ridiculous failed coup, and we have blood on our hands. Yeah, it's it's somewhat in a different order of magnitude, but it's reminiscent of the stuff that's going on with uh, Philip Roth's, like, what is his uh, legacy actually going to be if he has left instructions to destroy all of his papers after this one discredited biographer has, has seen them. Um, I know I'm breaking our rule to never, ever talk about Philip Roth. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I am actually literally transforming into a monster as we speak. (laughs) Same. same. (laughs) As a tusk for growing. (laughs) It's just a, it's a, a, a thing that's happening in our literary culture right this minute where people are like, how much does this change about the work that we already read that this person would do thing?" And it's really funny because it's not like it's the, the Philip Roth thing is exactly like this because it's exactly what would happen to Philip Roth. And it's so Philip Roth, but it's also like the, the thing that everyone has been trying to deny about Philip Roth from day one. So I think we have to back out of this topic. Now. Okay, we're backing out of the talk now. <laughs> um, okay, so here's our guy. We have Mishma. The fact that he is a fascist who's writing books that, as you said when you pitched this book as a topic for our podcast, you said it reads like a discrediting of fascism, but is by somebody who actually believes this. And that's sort of the both nuance and power of the book. Well, okay. On one level, the nuance and power of the book is that it's just incredibly beautiful. And like the, the, the texture of the prose, the characterization, the story itself, the way the story is written are all masterful. Mm -hmm. But then part of, I think that the next layer beyond that in terms of the, the question of what is it actually saying about these people, about people in general? um, What does it mean that there are um, these two opposing forces in the book? One of them is what the sailor is giving up when he gives up being a sailor to marry. And the other is the life on land, which includes love and having a job and friends and stuff like that. Part of what is shocking about this book is what complete nihilism 
is represented by the sea. It's not like Moby Dick, where the sea is this vast, very interesting place of engagement with other men and nature and, you know, whatever. Uh, symbols made flesh in various ways. It's really just, it's just an absolutely empty thing. The, the thing yeah. that glory would be, the, the, the glory that the sailor gives up. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, Mishima does say of the of the sailor Ryuji that he was not one of these sailors who loved the sea, but a sailor who detested the land. Um, yes, um, and it also so when it's talking about him at his most focused on glory, uh, he's noticing the other sailors on his ship whom he has no relationship with and dislikes and scorns in general. Um, there are men who look at drawings that their kids have that their kids have done and, you know, sent to their ships. Um, and so he sees this as those men uh, throwing opportunity away. And he says, I've never done much, but I've lived thinking of myself as the only real man. And if I'm right, then a poignant voice of glory will call for me from the distance. It, he acknowledges himself that, that the longing for glory doesn't involve doing anything. He doesn't have any idea of what a glorious action would be. And his vision of it happening for him is um, that the voice of glory calls to him, not that he personally does something that would be worthy. He just, he acknowledges he, he doesn't do much. He just thinks of himself as better than other people for like no real reason. Um, Which feels like, it feels again like, like a savage and accurate indictment of of fascism in an era when fascism is not ascendant, like of the mentality of right wing militias, that they just embrace this nihilism and like to walk around having fantasies of themselves as better than other people while not even actually being able to to join in an, an army, you know, because they can't get along with anyone. Yeah. The the sailor has all these opportunities and specifically says that those aspects of being a sailor are not glory. It's not the sea. It is not other sailors. It is not seeing other countries. It's not like traveling the world and having various dangerous experiences compared with people who are back on land. It's just watching the sunset and thinking of yourself as better and more important than other people which is one of the things that is interesting to me about uh, Mishima wanting the country to acknowledge the emperor as divine. I don't think he thinks that the emperor is divine. I think he knows that <laughs> this is a lie, but, but it's a lie that he thinks everyone ought to tell. Yeah. And in, in this New York times profile, it's really, there's, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about it from the point of view of someone who's just read this book, which is all about the sea as, as the, this image of glory and pain and, and, you know, whatever the ultimate ineffable thing is, um, is that Mishima actually lived in this big Victorian style mansion that was full of like European artifacts. And among them were these oil paintings of like 19th century beauties and sailing ships. So, he, he, you know, this is somebody who really 
you know, was never a sailor, was never at sea, but, but had that, that kind of like rich hobbyist fascination for sailing ships. Um, and in every way, he is that sort of person, a fantasist, I suppose, a fantasist. And he was a professional actor. He played roles. Um, I think the detail of him. And he wrote actually, for the stage also, right? Yeah, he did. He wrote yeah. for the stage, directed for the stage. Um, and, and you know, like I think like the most Mishima thing ever is him designing the costumes for his militia. That's him in a nutshell. Um, yeah. I um, I actually found the quote that I wanted to use to support my uh, my position that he doesn't actually think that the emperor is divine. He just thinks that everyone should lie about it in unison, that that's the meaningful thing to him. And this is actually, I, I know you can't really use dialogue from books, but it, I don't know. I want you to all go along with me and agree with me anyway. That, the, that this in some ways represents the author's position. Uh, this is something that the chief says, who's the chief of the gang of boys that kills um, the sailor uh, Ryuji. Um, he says, when a gear slips out of place, it's our duty to force it back or order will turn to chaos. We all know that the world is empty, but the only thing, the most important thing is to maintain order in that emptiness. And so we are guards. We also have executive power to make sure order is maintained. And then they also describe, this is the same gang of kids, they say, a father is a reality concealing machine. That in some ways, the position of these children, if it's coherent at all, which it really barely is, is that the network of interdependence and care that people have for each other that creates society and trade and international relations is an illusion. And what is real is absolute emptiness. And right. the, the truth is therefore best expressed by a lie. Yeah, it creates order, I'm, an order creating lie. It's it, it's so. I mean, his. I don't even want to call it a criticism because it's not actually an argument exactly. It's just a statement of his sense of reality. Is so is so profoundly nihilistic and radical, um, and this book is is generally discussed as being somehow a parable about. Japan versus the West, which which certainly it is in some ways, but but a lot of it it's just about that whatever was going on in Mishima's head against human life as it is lived by humans. Yeah, and so it's yeah, it's really it's really um, much more disordering and weird than you would think by reading the descriptions of it that you get. Yeah. It's not setting up one vision of society versus another. It's not setting up a vision of society as run by the Volk or something versus a multiculturalism or multiplicity in society. I think that there's real poignance in 
how beautifully he describes, because he has multiple point of view characters, and he describes their different minds so sensitively and even erotically and with so much generosity that you it's like the facts about his life are, are one of the reasons, one of the only reasons that you wouldn't see it as a love story between uh, Ryuji and um, Sako, the, the mother of the boy who ends up killing Ryuji. Um, that if Fusako represents everything that is the opposite of glory, she's a shopkeeper, she uh, cares for her child, um, she's friends with an actress, uh, she uh, buys and sells luxury goods from overseas, and when uh, Ryuji is engaged to her, she gives him a job in her shop and um, gives him an expensive English suit to wear, which you can see on some level that this is vibrating with uh, disapproval, that this is bad, but she's such a lovely character. Yeah, in, in every way, if Mishima were anyone else, you would think this book is such a brilliant commentary on the mentality of, of fascism and the far right and how completely pathetic and morally and emotionally bankrupt it is, except for a few moments yeah. <laughs> when the metaphors just kind of take wing and you realize, oh shit, he actually feels all this. Yeah. And it's, um, I think it's remarkable how many opportunities for how many opportunities to be obvious it avoids that it's that there isn't really a sense of, hmm. there's a simpler story to be told where the boy uh, Nuburu is jealous of his mother's attention and he's angry that she has the sexual att attraction to this uh, to Ryuji and that turns him into a like angry young man who hates women's sexuality and hates mothers or the yeah. you know whatever that kind of thing uh, um, but it's not that it's um, it's so much stranger and more subtle than that, even though it's close to that. And it kind of bumps up against that sometimes. But just the fact that it's fathers that they're also angry at, that the boys are all saying like a father is a, you know, a, a reality concealing machine, not a mother. And they like uh, Noburu, especially because he doesn't have a father. Uh, and maybe all of these things would fall into patterns of cliche that would be more familiar to me if I was more familiar with um, what was going on in Japanese culture at the time. I don't know that it would ever fall entirely into cliche because I don't think that the book, I think that the book is, is more original and more brilliant than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and there are, I mean, you would think that 
you would you would imagine like knowing knowing who Mishimo is and the and the basic story of the book that it would in some sense present the boys as pure and as as representing some kind of revolt of of the the young unsullied spirit against the compromises and corruption of middle age which the boys in some sense see themselves as doing yeah, but they're not believe that. that way at all the book doesn't believe that yeah not at all the book just presents them as odious weak little assholes <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there's a scene where the where the gang of boys gets together and they're trying to cure themselves of pity so they kill a kitten and dissect it but it's truly disturbing because it's such making eye contact it never blinks. <laughs> the scene the writing does not blink as the boys are like squeezing the you know undigested food out of the kitten's viscera and stuff. Yeah, it, you, you end that scene totally believing that Mishima has dissected a kitten at some point in his life. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I don't don't want to think about it anymore because I completely agree with you. But so he, the uh, Nobu, the, the boy, it says he feels like a giant of a man as he smashes it. <laughs> like that is not the writing of a novel that agrees that a 13-year-old killing a kitten is somehow a giant of a man. Um, but then there's this other sentence that seems so beautiful that he feels pity inside himself like the lighted window of an express train seen from a distance, um, that it's something that he's aware of, but not something that that um, it changes his behavior or, or changes his mind about what he's doing. But there is this awareness of another life that's somewhere distant, you know, in an express train, uh, a, a different perspective on the world. I mean, yeah. And what's so amazing about it is that even though the book is not endorsing the experience that Noboro has of being a giant of a man in this scene, there's also no irony. It's, it's just presented to you. It's just given to you. The book tells you what's going on and leaves you with it to cope with however you can. Yeah, I, I think that's really true. I think that there's no scene. So there's, you know, scenes where the mother and the sailor, who is her boyfriend at this point, are having sex. And there's no sense of judgment from the book about what they're doing, even though she wants to think of herself as being a, you know, upstanding widow who isn't just having boyfriends come around her son and is, is decent compared with, with other women that she thinks would be more, I don't know, more likely to sleep around that she has judgments about her own behavior, but the book doesn't. Yeah, and the book also has no um, has no judgment of. I mean, it doesn't have any judgment of anyone. It's really peculiar, actually, how it presents these really horrifying situations, but just leaves them there and tells you what the characters who are experiencing them thinking think of them. Um, and the only hint that you have of the authors relationship to these events is aesthetic 
So some things are presented in this highly aestheticized way with really wild metaphors and you get this sort of peak experience. And maybe that's a, that's a key to what was important to Mishima was actually that, that extremely heightened experience and not any kind of moral structure or content to events. Yeah, that's actually one of the features that, that I, I took notes on because I thought it was so interesting about the gang of boys that when they are, they have a list of crimes that Ryuji the sailor has committed that they think are capital crimes. And they, um, if this is something we were talking about before, is that they don't actually like each other, that they're friends, but they are also quite cold and distant from each other, uh, which I, th- I think is another element of what they're doing as a group, that um, they're not like a gang that has some kind of internal loyalty that makes them feel like they belong together. Um, yeah. They're just these weird, creepy little bureaucrats. Um, and so the, the, the things that Ryuji did that are capital crimes are at one point he was wearing a wet shirt, which embarrasses Nabur, he thinks is, um, an error of taste. And then he smiles too much when he greets Nabur, which Nabur feels is he's trying to like establish a good relationship with his girlfriend's son. And he's like, oh, it's just too cringe, you know? <laughs> it's like that you care that much that you want to um, create a good relationship is so embarrassing for you and you don't even know it. Um, and then at one point, the boyfriend and girlfriend, the mom and, and uh, Ryuji, they leave Nabu alone for a night. So they like go have a night in a hotel or something. And he feels abandoned and the is it the entire group that they agree that this is bad but it's not as bad as the errors of taste that his feelings of abandonment are less important because they're just about himself whereas the errors of taste are a way that Ryuji has actually um, failed to kind of take the challenge of life in an interesting way I, f- I forget there's one that that re- that uh, Nabor actually himself crosses out and decides doesn't count as a crime because it's about what he wants and not about an error of taste. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They have a really murderous sense of aesthetics. And that idea that, that these aesthetics are more important than human relationships and, in fact, more important than human life... Uh, there's that scene that we were talking about before where Nabooru is in the sort of chest of drawers spying on his mother and her boyfriend having sex. They discover him. The mother pulls him out of this like closety kind of thing and slaps him, which is the first time she's ever hit him. And she's furious. And then they both kind of wait for Ryuji to come and react. And in from Ryuji's perspective, he thinks like, oh, I could get really angry and like hit the hit the boy, but I need to think of his feelings and I need to think of my fiance's feelings. And, and he imagines this relationship that he'll have like going far into the future where they'll be able to look back at this and they'll laugh at it and he wants to forgive him out of respect for all of those 
relationships and everyone's feelings, which Nobu is furious about. <laughs> yeah, that is like the last straw. That is the absolute last straw, and that's what gets him murdered, really. Yeah. Is uh, sensitivity to the network of cause and effect in human relationships um, is definitely worse than wearing a wet shirt or smiling. But they're in the same category. Yes. And and interestingly, at the end of the day, I mean, this is one of the things where the book just departs from anything that you think it could be and is in its own weird um, moral reality is that at the end of the book, when Ryuji goes to the cave with them all and is drinking the, the sedative in his teeth that is going to kill, that is going to pacify him so they can kill him, um, which we don't actually see. We just see them um, putting on their gloves in a creepy. Yes. <laughs> putting on their gloves. Oh my God. Um, and, but, and he's telling these stories of the sea and in telling the stories of, about his time at sea, he seems to feel all of the things that they feel about how, it's right for him to die essentially and that he has betrayed the sea and he has betrayed the concept of glory and everything that he has decided to do in embracing a life on land and becoming a mature adult and doing all of the things that bring happiness is all false and corrupt and wrong. Yeah. And yet there's also the vision of the glorious man is somebody who should be able to fall in love. He just has to die of it. Which he's doing. Yeah. It's like he's actually predicted this whole thing and it's all unfolded exactly in the right way. So in a sense, the boys are, are the instrument of his fantasy. Yeah. And that's part of what makes the book so peculiar is that that um, that emptiness of what the fantasy is, that the fantasy is that you get murdered by a group of 13-year-olds. The fantasy... Uh, like, if you think of, about this book alongside something like uh, The Lord of the Flies or other murderous child books, um, there's something that there's something on each side. There's something that is, um, well, I, I guess uh, Ender's Game is another one that that has a, a really clear one to talk about, where it's like, if you are a successfully murderous child, then you are helping your society murder more aliens and take over more planets. So, uh, you know, you're essentially helping the empire. And if you are a, a too gentle child, then... Um, then you're not. So it's like, these are the, the, the two sides of the thing that you could be doing. And in um, Lord of the Flies, let's say, it's like a state of uh, society is like, you are responsible with <laughs> the cot shell or something. <laughs> and then like you obey rules. Um, and then a state of like, wilderness human is that you just murder people when they have what you want. There's nothing like that in this book. It's like 
all human experiences versus glory. Every possible action versus glory. Yeah, you know what I think is like the book might be in a weird way. It's like it has the bizarre logic of of someone's obsessive sexual fantasy, even though in a, like, in a way, like actual sexual experience is excluded from it. And even when Noboro is, is watching his mother and the sailor have sex as a 13-year-old boy, we are not told that he has any sexual reaction. It, it has this feeling of like this very odd logic, which, which feels like, like dream logic in a realist world. Um, and yeah. I think that, yeah. that a lot of the aesthetic stuff, it, it's, it's as if he's talking about orgasm. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. It's just orgasm. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons that it's so surprising that it also is telling like the, the characters are, are so sensitively human that they don't just feel like, um, like puppet show characters just to to like play out one particular fantasy yeah i mean you can see how like the japanese public when when uh mishima finally played out his whole like coup that was obviously going to fail and was designed to showcase his strange like ritual suicide which he had fantasized about and practiced for for years and years and years like they they felt like wrong-footed because they had been led on by this entire edifice of of artistry and sensitivity and intelligence when it was really just all about that yeah i think there's one place in the book that kind of tips his hand where uh so there's this part where uh the the mother um, goes to her actress friend and says that she's, you know, thinking about marrying this guy. And the uh, actress friend says, you should get a private detective to check him out because, you know, you have a child to think of and you need to make sure he's a man of good character. And she, and the, the actress says that she personally did the same thing and found out that the guy she was thinking of marrying actually had like four other girlfriends, and, you know, <laughs> right. like whatever. And like, he's a sailor, he could have diseases and stuff like that. And the private investigator comes back with what the book thinks of the book thinks, you know, to the degree that the book thinks this is, this is my argument that the book believes that, um, that this report is a sign of excellent character, uh, that Ryuji has no close friends, has never been in a relationship and has never borrowed money and uh, finds it difficult to get along with other people and is not interested in anything. And that uh, Fusako is like, ah, perfect husband material. <laughs> Unblemished uh, report of disliking everyone and everything, which is true. That, and she says, like, that's exactly who I always thought he was. And that seems like, a uh, weird in cell fantasy. I think that 
those people do make YouTube videos talking about how amazing this book is. So I think that there is a message about how great it is for men to withdraw from every part of uh, modern life, which is in some way feminized, but that means every part of human life. And that that is a state of purity and kind of like emotional virginity from which uh, you could theoretically draw some kind of strength, even though the book is pretty clear that the only strength that you could draw from that is death. Yeah, the the book the book in Mishima in general has a a strong like energy of while you were partying, I studied the blade. <laughs> it really, but it really does not make you. It, somehow, it like doubles down on that being about being an incel rather than about secretly being a warrior who will do anything of value. It's like, oh, you're an incel, and eventually, like you, it will end in like an ignominious death. Yeah, it's not a story about a an incel who saves the day. That's for sure. (laughs) Not at all. Um, So it's like this radical realism about I it's, it's all very strange. It's sort of like as if Mishima understood every single thing about himself, except which parts of it were, were possibly stupid and bad. Maybe, but maybe he actually understood that they were stupid and bad. And he knew also, uh, how everyone was going to react to his death, which is kind of like, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> and like, maybe, maybe it's actually all in there. I don't know. It's all, it's a bit, I mean, I think he, I think he did want to see the parts of himself that, that other people found most indigestible as the most beautiful parts Um so like I found this I found this quote from him which is about him trying to explain his view of Japanese-ness versus or of Japanese history as being corrupted by the West and he says that the Japanese people now are, are materialist and wealthy and want nothing but to enjoy life without limitation but all of this freedom and enjoyment is artificial um, and it's like and he and this is true of him too that he has nothing real to offer because his life too is artificial canned food. And he says, so I reached the conclusion that we must search for and find something genuine and pure, something raw, not only in our minds, but in our history. I want to touch fire, but there is no fire in our present society. Who is the one in Greek myth who took fire from the mountain? Yes, Prometheus. I want to be Prometheus. So he's just rejecting everything and searching for something that would be pure and raw. And he finds it in this part of himself that has the virtue of just being different from everything around him, I guess. I don't know. Just guessing. Yeah. And I I think that that idea that everything is somewhat fake is, uh, I mean, that's a real thing. Especially if he's gay and is trying to make a, uh, heterosexual appearing life there's if he's deep in the theater and also feels that everything is somewhat a play that's being put on all the time yeah about, he was uh, very much a public person it was like he was the 
kind of 1950s, 60s version of being extremely online, only like in person. <laughs> it's like I was giving lectures and like continuously in public playing Mishima to other people. Yeah, and this is the era of like, don't trust anyone over 30 also. Um, yeah. He apparently wrote about when, when James Dean died, um, he wrote, uh, the beautiful should die young. Everyone else should live as long as possible. Um, unfortunately, 95% of people get it backward with gorgeous people lingering into their eighties and hideous fools <laughs> dropping <laughs> 21. <laughs> Which, I mean, okay, it is really it's subjectively likable. <laughs> <say something>, <laughs> Um, I'm really glad we read this book. I really enjoyed it. And I also, you know, I definitely sometimes got little like tremors of, ah, shut up. When he's, you know, talking about how amazing it is for men to be men and how the whole house changes when a man's voice is, and it's like, uh, uh, okay, sure, sure, sure. You know, but um, outside of, some it, it's like some kind of inner creepiness that never quite resolves into it's not a coherent worldview it's just maybe it's a dream logic version of a coherent worldview it's not an argument it's just like a, a strange and very brightly memorable little book yeah, yeah. But it's less an argument than many books are. I wouldn't say yeah. most, but many books are much more coherent about what they're actually, um, like, a, you know, a moral system within the book. Yeah, and this seems to have, I don't know, it's, it's certainly a moral universe, but it's not one that is recommending anything exactly it's strange anyway yeah. i'm glad you liked it though i was i was i think i think you'll see why i would have been concerned that you would just hate the book and find it re repulsive yeah i mean there were moments <laughs> i had moments <laughs> i i didn't i didn't ever hate the book i did sometimes find it repulsive the um the kitten murdering scene really came right up to the edge for me yeah of um too much yeah, I, I think that it's it's pretty amazing to actually have a book about murderous children that's this non-judgmental and open to the possibility that that maybe they have a point, maybe not. You know. Yeah, and it's, it's certainly brave about depicting children as kind of pre-moral creatures and not as, um, which I don't think is exactly true, but. You know, no. you know like, like I'm not sure if this belongs in the podcast, but there's another fascist writer, a contemporary writer who I'm I'm fascinated by called Zakhar Prilepin, who's uh -huh. this Russian writer who's like super important in Russia, but not much translated because he's a fascist, I believe. Yeah. But he has he has an entire book which is about murderous children, and it's and it has the same kinds of of murderous children, like this really obsessive need to believe that children are not susceptible to adult feelings of pity or compassion. 
Yeah, I think that if there's any kind of fantasy, it's definitely that the kids could be that competent and organized and also have no human feeling, really, or to have their feelings just be little flickers in the distance, which if that is actually the experience that these writers had of childhood, then that suggests like, I mean, maybe they're just psychopaths, you know? I think it's, I think there might be something. There's probably more in this that, that we would need to, to really like almost study for a month to understand about childhood in a, in a fascist society when you're, you know, Mishima is growing up in the early days of the world of World War II and the rise of fascism as an extremely violent culture, even in the everyday world. So that there might be something about that that makes the entire concept of childhood really different. I don't know. That's a really good point. Because I think that 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 combination of order and the void, uh, where it's not that order is standing against the void, it's that order is a way of acknowledging the emptiness of experience. I, I think that he really is describing an experience that I have not had at any part of my life. Yeah, yeah. episode on the sailor who fell from grace with the sea uh thank you as always to adam bear for our music and to everyone at literary hub for hosting us we love to hear from listeners so please write to us at uh, lit century pod on twitter and lit century podcast at gmail.com for email and goodbye till next week <laughs>